0: You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Go Wild. Go Wild is the fastest growing social media app for the outdoor enthusiasts. Whether you hunt, fish, hike, or camp, Go Wild has a feature for you. You can visit timetogowild.com for more information or visit your Google App Store on your mobile device and download the Go Wild app. Let's get outside. It's time to go wild.
1: Thanks for listening to another podcast, the Habitat Heroes podcast, right here at Land and Legacy. This is Matt Dye. And Adam Keith. Man, oh man. Thanksgiving just happened. Yep. Full bellies. But it's getting time, prime time to hunt again. And the preparations from last year or this, you know, off season, I think is when we really start to key into them. And we are, we're always doing stuff and we're always utilizing, you know, bedding area thickets and this and that. But food plot wise is when this time that we're getting into entering really starts to shine. Yes. I think
2: it's an interesting time of the year because, well, right now it's, yeah, almost 60 degrees outside but yeah, warm for a lot of people in the midwest and southeast and across the country for that matter is we've experienced the rut now some places are are coming up on the rut but a majority of people have that november rut um, to where for us here in missouri we've got the rut just happened yep and a lot of us really like to hunt that early November, mid mid November, um, time frame. Mm-hmm. So a lot more pressure is put on the white tails. And so you have a, a rut, which there's tons of traveling, tons of chasing, tons of energy spent. Then you, you put with that tons of pressure to where it's an odd time because it's, what are the deer doing? They're nocturnal. Are they nocturnal because they've been pressured really bad? Um, Where are they going now to try and recover? But there's still kind of a trickle a little bit trying to find the last few receptive does. Um, So there's still some sporadic chasing to see. Um, But for the most part, a majority of the deer are trying to, two things, get to food sources because they want to recover from the rut, but they're trying to prepare for the dead of winter.
1: I I feel like it's that time frame in your life where you... You're really super busy at work. And then like everything just like falls to the wayside and like it's just a matter it's just chaos in your life. And then all of a sudden you're like you start to slow back down. You're like, okay, let me just get back in my routine and settle back into me just being me, like getting good hours of sleep, doing my meal prep at the beginning of the week, whatever it is. Yeah. But like that's what deer are doing too. So now again is the time frame where Everything starts to be a little bit more regulated. We get out of the crazy, the hustle and bustle of late October, November, and things just start to shake out and settle back out. It's kind of that
2: January time frame for most, most Americans. Yeah. Holiday season's over. Uh-huh. Now it's time to get
1: back to work. Yeah. And, and diet. Prepare for <laughs> And diet. And yeah. prepare for the next holiday. But you know what? Before we really, really get into this, I, I started off and, and just... Jumped in, but we have a huge announcement. We do, and and they probably some of them probably saw it on Facebook.
2: Yep, but if you haven't, hello, wake we've up. We've been talking about it for months now, but the first launch of the apparel line. This time it's just hats, um,
1: but and I shouldn't say just hats because it's pretty fantastic hats. I mean they're they're. On, and we talked about, like, I guess, you know, the quality kind of associated with them and what we wanted to put out. Yep. And it was worth the wait because they're incredible. I mean, yep. and I'm not just saying that because we did it or, you know, hey, pat on the back. Good job, guys. But really, they're great hats all around. They are. From design, the patchwork. To just the quality of the hat. The message sent. The message, exactly why we're doing it, where money's going towards, back into conservation. Um, hats are here. That's right. com. Go check them out. There'll be a link in this podcast notes. We've or put it up on social media. dot
2: tv. Yep. Shop tab, which will then link you to and send you to landandlegacyapparel dot com. Yep. Um, you have five hats to choose from. Uh huh. Two that are just a logo wear. Uh, we say our, just a logo wear, but our, they're pretty stancy. There are our logo on the front. They're unstructured hats. One in a kind of a light brown driftwood khaki is the actual name, Oof. and then navy navy blue and khaki. Yep. And they are um, those are priced at what twenty four or something twenty three bucks. Right there, under twenty-five bucks, somewhere in yep. there. Um, and then we have the three conservation caps so far that are a quail hat, which is um, a replication. It's kind of a I don't know. It, our wife would say cartoonish, oh. but it's kind of a it's a it's a really cool artwork yes, of Patchwork uh, original. several of, of a covey rising in a pine yep. savanna with native grasses underneath trying to replicate the
1: southern pine plantations and savannas of the southeast so it's like holy crap you guys got all that in a patch yep yep and hidden in that patch is our logo as well yep. um so it, it's really really cool and the cool the best thing about it though is with that hat um it's on a brown front, it's a two-tone hat, brown front, khaki in the back, and $5 of that, the purchase price, goes directly to Quail Forever. Yes. So, you know. And,
2: and it may be every month or it may be yeah. every quarter, but we're going to look at how many we sold, and then we're going to cut the check and send it directly to Quail Forever. So, um, boy, if you keep tangling those cords, you're going to short <laughs> it out. Um, anyway, uh, and but, then we have the turkey hat, which yep. all, uh, $5 of each, uh, hat purchase goes to a National Wild Turkey Federation, kind of a mountainous scene with a turkey sh- half strut goblin. So awesome. And then we, and that's on a kind of a, a, a olive, I think it's called Loden yep. is Loden the color, but it's like a green, co- yeah. yeah, it's, it's a green hat basically with a really cool scene of a turkey. And once again, NWTF partner kind of thing there, nothing official, but we're just going to send checks to National Wild Turkey Federation every month after we see the purchases. And then lastly, we have the tricolored hat, which is kind of a denim, light blue color, grayish color um, with a gold bill and a cream kind of back. And you say, ugh. But promise it sounds you, weird, but you've sounds got weird, but it looks good. Do yourself a favor, go look at it. And a big buck on that patch, which is in the scenes of a rolling prairie, kind of Flint Hills, sand hills, even uh, Oklahoma, if you if you want to call it that. Um, anywhere rolling prairie, big buck. Um, and that's kind of the the scene with that one. So five dollars of each purchase. So that goes to the Quality Deer Management Association, and so. It ends up being, I think, uh, some people throw out that the percentage of this profit goes to uh, this, for us, we just said $5, which I yep. think ends up being like 33%, or just over 30% of the profits goes to right um, conservation. So yep. it's kind of, for us, you've heard us preach about conservation and supporting conservation, um, both financially and with our time, and so... Obviously we devote a lot of our time to conservation with what we do on a daily da- daily basis with consulting with the podcast and then also with running a nonprofit organization branch in my hometown. Uh, but this is a way that we can support conservation and you by purchasing the hat.
1: Well, I was gonna say, you know not only do you look really snazzy wearing these caps around, but, you know, every every purchase you will be helping more habitat, more game species, and non-game species, um, furthering their advancement and protection um, of private lands, public lands, yep. everything. So again, we're just cutting checks to these groups we've um, that each hat is associated with, and you know, let them spend the money the way they have in the past, and that's protecting these animals
2: that's right and the habitat save the the hunt is national turkey federation slogan um so yes this is a great chance for you to support us um with purchasing a hat but also support conservation so win-win right win -win. Um, and and since we're now have something to tease you with um We're keeping our eyes more on to the reviews on iTunes and as well as our page, the recommendation um, tab on our Facebook page to where we're going to randomly select people throughout the year and if we select you, you leave an awesome review. We're going to message you and find out your address and send you a hat. So that is a way for us to encourage you to leave reviews. I mean, shoot, you're listening to us already. So might as well help us out so we can continue helping others improve habitat. Um, So give us a review. Give us a like. And then also, um, what's another way for them to get a free hat? Um, by leaving us a review sharing our content that's yep. another thing so anytime we do, we do watch that closely if you don't if you don't um follow us on on facebook or instagram it's a time to follow because the more you share the better chance you have of getting a free hat yep so um anyway
1: uh definitely check it out it's in the show notes um com or TV and click on the shop tab. Check it out. Again, these are the first five hats that we've released. We've got more in the works right now and other pieces of apparel that will be coming here soon. T-shirts, probably some hoodies, maybe a beanie. Um, so be watching. We will continue to update you guys on the rest of those releases. Um, and if there's any awesome um discounts whatever it is but now is the perfect time to have them released and re- ready for the holidays they make perfect gifts so I encourage you guys to check them out and um help us help in further conservation so thank you guys very much for that and for listening weekly to the podcast i guess to continue with our um talk of the rut in yes. november before we
2: jump into the rut we have one more message as we prepare um, our notes and, and we'll jump right in.
1: One of the biggest things you've probably picked up with the podcast is the fact that we always talk about long-term lasting habitat techniques, recommendations, things you can do with a property that makes sense for a long-term investment and that complement the native landscape. So it only makes sense to work with pure Natives, supplier of native seed for your property. They've got it all from bedding cover to wildflower mixes, pollinator mixes,
2: CRP mixes, everything from a wide variety that you can provide for your native species, whether it be in a marshy area or a dry glade, wherever you're at in the country, they probably got something for you. And special to the podcast listeners, when you are placing an order, make sure you mention the Land of Legacy podcast for a 10% discount on all seed varieties. For me, what I find most exciting is anybody who's ever looked at native grass mixes or native species mixes, they probably see a little bit more expensive price tag, Mm -hmm. and oftentimes that goes with their species that are rare or a little bit harder to get that are in those blends, so the price goes up. Working specifically with pure air natives, we've come up with some blends that are very beneficial, but we've place species in those blends that are a little bit more affordable. So instead of seeing a $400 or $500 an acre price tag, we're looking at stuff under the $150 price range That's per it. acre. So It's
1: more important to see more acres devoted to good native habitat than it is to spend all that money. We want to make it affordable and have the good base species and let, let nature take its course and diversity come back into those stands.
2: Absolutely. Check it out, pureairnatives.com. All right, so post-rut. Here it is. And kind of, you know, there's still a little rut activity going on. But the peak, for the most part, peak breeding, peak rut is over. Um, You're going to see kind of sporadic stuff from here till whenever they all get uh, bred. But um, for the most part, peak rut is over. And now it's time to recover from the rut, but also prepare for winter. And unfortunately for some people or for some deer... The winter is already full fledged. Uh, we're seeing oh. places up north. Shoot, there's places in Iowa that are supposed to get 12 inches of snow tonight. So, right, right. Um, it's it's a time of the year when uh, a lot of a lot of stress can be put on it on a deer, and this starts now and it doesn't really stop until March yep. and April. Yep. And so, unfortunately, it's uh it's so crucial. Earlier, you mentioned how much uh like bedding bedding thickets play into hunting the rut. But now this is when habitat improvement becomes so crucial because oh, yeah. if your habitat is is uh, put in place and you've improved it, you shouldn't have to worry about your deer surviving and, and, and really the winter kills because you, have, you know you have plenty of habitat, uh, you have plenty of food, you have plenty of cover, you have plenty of security, there's plenty of water. Everything's in place to where... They're going to do what they, they do just best. Living life, at and this they're going point. to
1: survive. And, and this is also the time frame where, if you have done all of that work before season and prepared for late season, this is when the deer. I mean, we talk about the rut and like, you know, you get new bucks that just kind of cruise through. They stay for a couple of days. They show up on camera a couple of times, and then they're gone. This is a time frame where the bucks come and stay because of all these resources that are in place. And they stay and, and will follow that food. So if you have food resources, as we begin to shift out of the post-rut into basically the recovery phase of of deer, because they have been going crazy all the time, this is when um, the bucks come back. They are permanent. They get on a pattern. And those deer that you don't know who they are um, will become more regular visitors as well. So It's a cool time frame, but there's a lot of things that we can do habitat-wise to best prepare for it. And one of them, this isn't really a habitat thing, but one thing that we are um, actively doing is taking some cameras that were really hot pre-rut, maybe some of those bottlenecks um, that we aren't going to be hunting as much anymore, but those will be transitions into food food sources. Food plots. Yeah and then it becomes just like
2: Seth Harker mentioned in in this week's hunting podcast Hunting Hunches. Yes. And in I'll explain kind of really when it comes to hunting a hunch is as we shift our cameras back to food sources the 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 best food source in the area um, and that's standing stratton beans or Ooh. legacy blend whatever the food Ooh, plot Adamant is treasure. that's going to be that's going to be a lot of the first food to get eaten and and kind of the focus of where the deer patterns are going to be just because it's so readily available
1: it's high quality
2: now it's exactly what they need it, it's high quality for it that, that they can easily get to now we have all the temporary forest openings or bedding tickets the tsi to where there's tons of uh there's tons of browse available But, and they're still going to browse on that, but that's going to be so great during the late winter. Mm -hmm. Um, But right now the food sources, our food plots are going to be the the hot commodity. And so as we shift our cameras to those food plots, it's now where we're monitoring what deer are coming into those food plots, where they're entering the field and what time they're coming in there. So if we have a deer, like right now we have a really nice eight pointer, that we were calling Big Show, but then Big Show showed up. So now we'll just call him the Big Eight Pointer. Um, and he's a mid 40s. We're, we're awfully creative. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's He's been active on. Uh, he just kind of showed back up, but it seems that he's on one ridge, but he has appeared to be in a one food plot we call Ruby Ridge at dark mm-hmm. or after dark. And so a uh, hunting a hunch would be. Okay, he's there, but the weather conditions weren't that great. He's bedded close, most likely. If we start getting more pictures of him on that food plot after dark, we're going to go, okay, as soon as we get that cold front where everything's lined up. So let's say barometric pressure's high, um, temps have dropped, temps have dropped. We know they're really coming into food sources. Then we're going to move in there and hunt the hunch of he's in the area, but tonight's the chance that he's going to be moving during daylight. That's exactly right. And yep. so we're hunting a hunch. We're moving in our cameras to food plots, and we're monitoring what deer coming to food plots. Right now, there's a lot of deer moving on the family farm and the, and the Prairie Hollow property. Yep. And a lot of that is responsible for the fact that we haven't overpressured our deer. We hunted the stands all with appropriate winds, um, but... We still have a lot of pressure going on. There's a lot of change that's happened. Uh, the neighbors have hunted hard. We've hunted hard. There's been logging even- crew is changing
1: their location.
2: <laughs> logging crew is moving back in after a couple of weeks of of uh, wet of <laughs> wet, uh, wet conditions. So there's a lot of activity going on in the area. The gravel road unfortunately picks up this time of year as leaves are falling and more people are out, frankly, road hunting. And we know this mm-hmm. for the simple fact that we actually found a blood pile in the middle of the gravel road, and I tracked it 50 yards off the road to where it stopped. So somebody shot a deer right off the gravel road and drug it up and loaded it up. So uh, more people are road hunting. If and, you're listening,
1: that was foolish. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> we're coming for
2: you. we going to find you. Yeah. And uh, So anyway, there's just a lot of activity. So deer are more nocturnal. They've, they've got through gun season, but they're still nocturnal. And then you add the warmer temperatures. That's just all coming into play. But now... We're moving cameras. We're shifting them on the food plots, and we're waiting for the conditions to get right to where they start focusing more on that food plot, and then we get the conditions that pushes them out during daylight.
1: Yeah, and I don't want to, I guess, give the illusion, provide the illusion that you know rut activity is over, because in my mind, when I think of later November, I kind of have almost two strategies, because as there is a lot of transition, like you've just talked about, in what deer are doing my mind goes to, okay, I have kind of a morning strategy that's a a little bit up in the air as to just depend upon the weather and the day. But then I have like an evening strategy. And from a morning strategy standpoint, um, you know, it really becomes hunting the bedding areas and the bottlenecks, knowing that as deer are feeding, as temperatures do generally continue to drop and we're getting colder and colder they need to feed in the morning and they're coming back off those food sources and if there is a little bit of rut activity it's going to be most likely associated around again like we've been talking about bedding areas so in a morning situation with if the weather cooperates um if i'm seeing signs on cameras that there is still a little bit of chasing activity going around i'm going to be focusing in it in around those areas um Now, looking into super, super cold days where there are heavy, heavy frosts, to me, I don't think a bad uh, situation to hunt is a food plot late in the morning because of the frost that's on the ground and the forage. As soon as it starts to thaw out and sun hits it, that's when the deer get up and start to come to that food resource.
2: And and that also includes me that that right there is another thing to why it can be so sporadic right after this late this late november is your deer coming out of rut they're coming out of hunting season or the most pressured time of the year mm-hmm. um and then you add this shift in you're getting these heavy frosts, the first heavy frost that deer yep. haven't really adapted to that really cold temperatures yet if if that's happening or occurring in your play and in, on your farm and so Then you throw that into it to where you have deer not going all the way back to a bedding area to bed. They're kind of doing that early morning bedding somewhat close. And then as soon as
1: the frost melts, get up, feed a little bit more, and then go to... Then basically make that full jaunt, walk all the way back into that good quality bedding area. And then that could lead to where
2: they stay in that bedding area longer to where Mm -hmm. they're not moving during the afternoon. Mm -hmm. So you've got a lot of things to weigh out and try to understand what's happened to... Did that morning they moved like crazy because they bedded close? To, there was a heavy frost. They bedded close to a food source for a little while, got up, fed for a little longer, and then went
1: all the way back. Mm-hmm. Is that coming into play? And, 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 and like, like you said, we're right now in that kind of weird temperature time frame where you know you get cold mornings, but then it warms up during the middle of the day and it gets cold again in the evening or it's just warm for like three days and like just the patterns because of the changing weather and fluctuations the patterns are all screwy and it's like oh my gosh what do i do but there are the there are the the key factors that you need to to be looking at is okay what are the deer doing how they're reacting on the cameras and make your moves from there based on and you really need to be studying this this time frame i think kind of like uh you would in october the, with the weather, you need to be looking at the fronts. So you need to be looking at the pressure and watching how deer are reacting to that, and making your your stands and your judgment calls based on that.
2: Absolutely, I know a lot of good deer that have been killed right around Thanksgiving in mm-hmm. in the in the Midwest because of the the shift of. They're going back. It was a tough rut. They ran all over the country. Now they got to get back and build up some body fat. But
1: one thing about them is even though they've done all that and expelled all that energy and push, push, pushed, they don't want it to stop. A buck does not want the rut to truly be over. Yes, he is under stress and put his body through heck to get to this point, but if there's an opportunity to find a receptive doe, he is going to do it. Yep. And and those does are doing the
2: same thing that we just described. They're going back to food sources. We've talked all October and November about cover and bedding thickets and, and does seeking out the best cover and trying to hide okay. from those bucks. But now it's to a point where they they need to go to the food sources more regularly to build up body fat to where they can survive the winter. Absolutely. And Absolutely. so what are some habitat things we can do to, um, once we understand this, what can we do to improve our hunting what do you know? Yeah,
1: with all that chaos being said and, and, and kind of things thrown up in the air as to what deer may be doing, there are definite strategies that you can use on a property and set it up in a manner that, again, this time of November, this portion of the rut, as there is so much changing and transition, that habitat will still uh, really predict their movements. One of those is improving the food sources on eastern-facing slopes. Now, why does that even matter? Number one, we, ju- we just kind of talked about those, those late-morning feeding areas um, based on frost and cooler temperatures that are coming in. If you have an east-facing slope, the sun is going to hit that area first and allow those areas to be the first ones to offer quality forage and, and- forage that they want to readily eat.
2: And that could go as far as you want to make a food plot. And, okay, I want a food plot that's going to have the frost melted off of it first. Okay, great. But if you're in a situation where they are like, I'm lucky to get, uh, I have one food plot or two food mm-hmm. plots in my farm. What can you do? This is where a bedding thicket, one of these TSI areas where you promote this young forest, this early secession. Maybe it's spraying out an old pasture and you're trying to encourage browse in these east facing slopes to where you know that is the food source um as deer coming back and it may be as simple as uh, a bedding thicket on an east slope that's leading to a bigger bedding thicket, where you're like okay they may bed here but they may also pass right through and go to the bigger area you still know where the deer are going to go so you're already ahead of the game by offering maybe it's not a food plot but maybe it's a native food plot maybe it's just better browse but mm-hmm. overall, you're trying to improve the food on an east facing slope. That way, this time of year, you have the preferred food source during that mornings of heavy frost. And, and
1: it sounds silly to be like, okay, I'm going to set up a, a food plot specifically for this time frame, or specifically with an East facing exposure be- because of this guys, is it really that worth it? And my mind goes back immediately to a hunt that took place. This was more middle of gun season. And actually it was, it was more middle of November. Um, however, it was a very cold morning watching a large food plot. Um, and there was frost, it was down in the bottom, frost all over the food source, and as soon as the sun came up, there was zero deer in the food plot, none, and what we could see is like a little crown of a ridge uh, within the food plot, and as the sun came up, that was the first place that the sun hit and burnt the frost off, so 45 minutes after light, here come the deer, both sides of the food plot, coming out and they go to one spot in particular the very crown of that ridge and then as the sun continued to rise it started to and these deer were 280 yards out but as the sun started to rise it was hitting the slope that was closer to us so as it started to rise more and more frost started to burn off and you could slowly see that sun basically the line of the shade and the sun start to creep closer and closer and closer to us and that's exactly what the deer did as well they followed that sun into range and allowed i was filming at the time allowed the hunter to take a great buck but it is that important and if you ever watch deer in september time frame the first ones that come to a field where do they go? They start feeding in the shaded areas because the other areas are really hot. It's no different. The only difference is it's flipped at this time of the year. Deer are keen into the sun versus the shaded areas That's for right. that warmth and for burning off the frost. So, if again, if, if you're a person, you're like, oh, my schedule wise, I hunt, I hunt more late November, I have off around the holidays, um, whatever it may be. Set your farm up so you can hunt mornings effectively when frost burns off on east-facing slopes. Or you go and you cut in areas where, bedding areas, where as the sun does come up, that's where they're going to because they've got great cover, they've got forage, and the sun's already hitting there. That's right. Deer will absolutely
2: key into that. And it's one of those things, too, that, like, for us, I'm excited about the idea of a native food plot where you could go in and let's say you go in and you clear out a half an acre of an area and you and it's east facing slope and what was once closed canopy forest you clear it out and you expose all kinds of sunlight but then you go in with um let's just say we move forward and we can develop a a native i don't know if it's really developed because it's not like we're making these in a lab but we kind of put together a blend with Pure Air Natives that's a native food source that uh-huh. has species that are more browse tolerant um, yeah. that they may be browsing on. Partridge Pea, Illinois Bundle Flower, um, a whole long list that we're still toying around and kicking around. And to where once you do that, then you have these species that deer are going to browse on, but it's on an east-facing slope. You couldn't plant soybeans there. You couldn't plant wheat there. Um but you can plant these natives and send a fire through there plant the seeds and it just takes off to where now you have this awesome place to hunt and it didn't take it doesn't take yearly fertilizer it doesn't mm-hmm. take um yearly spray and it's just there once and done manage, manage it with fire very minimal and and now you have a incredibly good and this is something i think so many people look for that prime flat ground real estate that they overlook the things you can do on slopes. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. slopes... Deer still walk a slope. They're, Trust yeah, me. <laughs> they're not... Um, they don't um, pick flat ground over slopes. And, mm-hmm. and a lot of times, if you are in slope ground, deer spend a lot more time on those slopes because of wind, less activity. Well, And
1: and wind advantage for yes. them. How many times? Go into winter this,
2: this February after... After deer season, unless you're one of the guys in Arkansas and you're still trying to grind or it out. Ohio. <laughs> or Ohio. Um, and you're trying to grind it out till March. Go in and check out the trails and hills on hillside slopes and see where there's more activity. Because oh, a lot of times just off the crest of that ridge is a great place. But even mid-slope, if there's a shelf or somewhere like that, um, the kind of a little break in terrain, you're going to find a ton of sign. And these are areas that oftentimes get overlooked, especially when you look at habitat management. So, you could maybe you can't plant a food plot, but there's
1: that's just well, that's, that's just that's a the drop in reason, the bucket. Yeah, that's the exact reason why they do get overlooked because typically you don't plant a food plot on a, on sloped ground. Yeah, and, and therefore not much habitat or thought beyond food plots takes place in people's minds so they're neglected areas one which okay now they're secure areas so of course deer is going to be there whether you have good habitat or not yeah but if you improve that much more they're absolutely 100 percent going to be there because now there's security and good quality habitat
2: but adam and matt you guys said that you can't hunt the slopes or well because the swirling winds well if it is a slope that for some reason you can't hunt because of swirling winds. you can certainly do improvements and hunt deer going to it Uh Um, and so that's just a huge thing to consider
1: there there's i think there's more value in putting deer in a bedding situation not necessarily a feeding situation but in a bedding situation in areas that you can't get to and you can't hunt effectively because then it's almost too tempting to do it and you're like well you just talked about um, hunting over bedding area thickets for three weeks now. Okay, I get this, but this is slopes for late season. We're talking about east and south facing exposures. We're not talking about hunting those in in you know late October or early November. So there is a time and a window when deer are going to prefer these way over other ones. So again, if you're putting your resources and putting deer in, into these areas where you can't hunt them. Again, they are, it's security and high-quality cover, and your opportunity comes from, and your advantage comes from hunting deer and transition from those areas to whether well, it's flat ground on a food plot, whatever it may be, but you have still the opportunity to harvest them. In we wrap. ought to do a whole podcast
2: called like mid-slope
1: management. Ooh, I like it. That um, gummit, someone else is going to do it. <laughs> Two weeks from now. Good luck. Mid-slope management. Good luck. Nobody else wants to
2: devote a whole hour to mid-slope management. but Let's be real. No one wants to listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> I kidding, don't know. Kidding. Anyway, so those are some things you can do to manage those east slopes. And, and the thing about it is if it's really cold, deer aren't just going to pick one bed for the day. Oh, no. They're going to move around and chase that sun. And so if you're looking to really pick up the game on preferred bedding, you need to include some eastern slope for that, get that great underbrush to where sun can shine in, they still have cover. So you're looking for an east slope. But then make that closely correlated with a, south-facing slope and then mm-hmm. also a west-facing slope so that's yep. where a lot of times you see deer around points and they're betting on little knolls yep. or points Is because they're chasing that sun yep um some people think or some people want to preach that it's because of the wind currents but a lot of it has to do with this with the sun as well and so if they can move 10 feet but be in sun all day when it's cold they're certainly going to do that
1: it's no different if you've ever you know i guess depends on the the orientation of your house but if you've got a cat or a dog and you watch that cat or a dog they sleep during the day if you had a camera in your house while you're away at work i guarantee you promise you that cat or dog will f- move rooms throughout the day in the winter time chasing the sun that comes through the windows they do it if your house is cold <laughs> if your house is cold yeah they will do, it do it a
2: lot and and if you've ever set in a tree stand and you've watched the deer come in and bed down close to you it's not going to lay in the one bed it doesn't sprawl back and typically now there probably are guys that would say i saw it well on a for a hole on average deer don't spend the entire day in one bed they'll move around the buck you Mm -hmm. shot in kansas a couple of years ago yeah he moved a couple of times yeah we saw him in what was his second bed
1: and shot him while he was in his third bed we could see he was in a in a deep deep creek um and it was a sandy spot it was hot in early november bedded next to water but that sand was super cool and he followed at this time frame because of the, the current conditions he followed the shade that was down in that creek bed but that sand was so much cooler and so he had the sand on his belly and we could we watched and and then after shot made the shot as he was bedded down could go and find multiple different beds that he came around the little point within the creek bank itself. Um, so he had been there for hours, but moved three times and then shot him. Absolutely.
2: Glady and, and cut off. Yeah. That one's a whole big ridge that will be a betting area for multiple deer, but they'll have the ability to bet on the east slope. And yep. then parts of the stair step ridge as it moves down to where they're in the they're facing south, and then they can move around and face the west. Yep. It's going to be a fantastic petting area.
1: Um, but then, and, and, and about- that one is a little bit further removed from the food plot. We can, if we want to, still put another one that's a little more west facing. And, and it'd be closer to the food plot. So that early afternoon activity, they can make their way out of the Glady Cutoff further, move to the western side, that's, you know, let's say, 80 yards off the food plot, 100 yards off the food plot, bed there in the afternoon, and then come right up to the food source that's that close. Like, there's so many different things that we can do preparing for the late season. When deer are making this shift to uh, follow the sun throughout the day, we're going to have areas bedding areas strategically placed so they get to the food plot within daylight hours
2: and so when you think about that from a layout if you in a perfect world and you're trying to make the perfect bedding area for one perfect deer is you want the smallest area possible of providing that east south, west facing so you've got this small little area of a deer that you know is using that point Are using that area to where he can be bedded and get the sun throughout the day. This is late season. I'm talking specifically the cold days of winter. You have that, and it's closely correlated with a food plot. So you know that, okay, he's bedded most likely in that spot, and he is coming to this food plot, trying to shrink that range down to where it's not pointing at a map and saying he's bedded in this whole 50-acre circle. You want to try and get it to where it's at two acre circle and uh, you can do that by understanding kind of what slope what and what the dearest needs are
1: and and you mentioned the name of this this area that we're talking about that lies on the prairie hollow property um called glady cutoff and we did a podcast number 84 podcast 84 turning destination plots into kill plots that revolved around this area and we talk about the south the the southern eastern and western exposure that this point can give and the late season strategy that we have set up for this so if you want to um, go back and reinforce that information maybe you can understand this podcast a little bit better go listen and download podcast 84 and you can learn the exact way we set up this area um, to give you a little bit better understanding but so moving moving on from just food plots and strategies for for bedding um we got to get into basically the diversity that we plant i think within the food plots yeah. because right now like i said it's 60 degrees outside yeah. deer aren't keen into soybeans yet the standing grain from the wild game changer they're, they're not, not doing not, that
2: yet. They're not eating a lot of Milo. They're not eating a lot of standing soybeans. They're not eating standing corn. They're really going to be focused more on proteins, the greens, the brassicas. Clover at this time. The clovers, the wheat. I, I did see, and a big shout out to the Coy brothers. Not sure if they are if they listen every week, but they did what we talked a, mm-hmm. a lot about. Uh, if you have a clover food plot. So, so many people love this. clover yes. food yes. plots. Yes. Um, that clover is a great food source, but it is, once again, a one species. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times when you plant these clover plots, maybe you include other species, but clover very, is very similar. Um, what they did, so once again, legumes, fixate nitrogen... Um, You plant clover and for four years it fixates nitrogen to where you have an abundance of nitrogen that's not being used by anything that you want to use. So weeds, when they do get a a stronghold, they grow like crazy because there's an abundance of nitrogen. So we preach that in the fall, you need to drill in cereal grains, wheat, oats, triticale, uh, cereal rye. Um, Then you can plant some radishes, you can plant turnips, you can plant um vetch you there's a whole long list of things you can plant in the fall rape another one um to where they take they tap into that abundance of nitrogen and then now you have a, a an, another beneficial food source here that's going to help your clover out in the long run so what i saw the koi brothers did they drilled in a mix it was a only a few species but they drilled that into their clover and they showed the difference between their clover going dormant and then the, the greens so that what they had drilled in. That they drilled in. That yep. was a huge difference. And that's exactly why you want to do that in your clover. Clover, maybe you planted a perennial. It's still gonna be there. And since you just planted a fall annual, it's really gonna fill in the gap of when the when the perennial clover goes dormant. So Th- you're getting the best of both worlds here. You're using up that nitrogen, yeah, but yeah. you're providing another food source and you're basically putting something in place to where a weed you're fighting off weed suppression or, or fighting off weed control, so it's super easy, and it's another way to provide more forage on your farm.
1: That's exactly right. Provide more forage in a farm without though expanding a food plot, creating another one. You're simply utilizing one that kind of in this time frame wore itself out as just sucking back into the ground to, to you know protect itself. The clover is, but now you're letting other forages express themselves within the same area it's incredibly efficient when you talk about having tonnage on a farm without creating um additional food plots you just utilize the same area for multiple different like different times throughout a season so absolutely that's uh, a huge strategy but that's again though why we plant diversity within the food plot uh whether it is uh soybean field that then is overseeded or re-drilled during September timeframe with a high, high diversity blend of greens. Um, because now as the temperatures are fluctuating, it's getting colder. Deer are still actively pursuing food sources, but we have everything available within set food plots that, even though what they're selecting within the food plot changes from day to day, they're still going to these select food plots daily, if that makes sense. So instead of having one destination that's just soybeans or one destination that's just corn and one destination that's just wheat, those deer wouldn't be on as, as good of a pattern with the, wind, with the weather changing and temperatures fluctuating as, if you will, the deer that are on the Prairie Hollow property. Because within each food plot, we have consistent doe groups and bucks utilizing this one and other ones utilizing this one because within those given areas, they've got everything. They're standing grain and there's variety of different grasses and small grains, cool season grasses that they are eating foraging on.
2: And I think this is something I've had to learn over time of... I used to believe that maybe in this food plot you put your brassicas, in this food plot you yep. put your standing soybeans, in this food plot you put your wheat, in this food plot you put your clover. To where I have deer every single year or every single day. Like if it's hot, I know they're going to this one. If it's cold, I know they're going to this one. But now, after seeing this over the couple of years, to where if you have standing grain and the the greens in a food plot the deer that have that as a core area those deer go to this food plot mm-hmm. and then you have this core area of deer this doe group and bucks that and not to say bucks aren't going to change and go to different food plots there's a good chance they do that especially if you this can time of the shrink year, their that. core areas yes. down by providing everything they need in a in a given food plot Absolutely, and, and that's what it's really that's that's the that's the goal shrink the core area down shrink shrink their movement down to where you put them in a in a uh, area to where okay now I know they're in this specific area, I just need to make sure my access is right and I go in at the right time and I'm I'm gonna capitalize on it. And, Some and, people will tell you they want a deer that moves a ton I don't. with a huge range. I want them in a short, in a small area, as small as I can get it, and that way I know I can get in there and there's a good chance Basically, that deer is th- there. there
1: will be a window when that deer is harvestable. Yes, because you know what he's going to do if that's the food source, at late season and you get the weather, and it's set up stand-wise, which it always should be, for you to access it, then you go in and you harvest them. You just have to be particular and hunt right and set it up correctly that from the start that you know there's a window to strike and you do it when it's appropriate, and you don't do it when it's not appropriate. But setting up food plots in these mares where they're extremely diverse, have everything you could possibly want and a deer could possibly want in a late-season situation... You're set. You're just sitting back, monitoring, waiting again for the time to strike. It's not. It's not the guessing game of oh well. Is it? Is it? Did it warm up enough for that clover to become palatable? Like you might get a three-day stretch where clover just like boom pops open again, and it's super or, or a mild winter. You know, yeah. you could have where the standing grain doesn't get eaten, and you're sitting over there wishing. Oh my gosh. Well i didn't I didn't prepare right i I planned everything and and for standing grain things are gonna get cold and it doesn't you've got it all if you do greens and grain yep and the clover situation if it does get um mild enough during during December we've had it i think gosh it was six fifteen the year of fifteen it was extremely mild we' were hunting deer over clover fields in December that no. were had I mean they had wheat and everything drilled into them but that was like the focus you've got to have the diversity I, you, you, I, you can't be preached any, anymore diversity 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 no you
2: can't and and so it's just one of those things when you look at, let's let's talk about evening strategy. Evening strategy is almost the opposite of, of morning strategy. Morning strategy is, okay, I want to hunt close to the eastern slopes because that's where the frost is going to be burned off. They're going to come down there. They're probably going to either bed here or feed here at some point. Mm-hmm. Evening strategy would be, oh, it's really cold. I know they're going to be on west-facing slopes um, or maybe kind of that south-facing slope, depending on where you're at. And so... You're trying to hunt food sources close to those areas um, or trying to hunt deer coming from those areas to food sources. Maybe yeah. you're not hunting on the food source, but you're hunting in between the food source and the bedding area. And this is, to me, this whole mindset or this whole management practice really comes down to you need the almost a central part of that is you have food, you have cover, you have security over all of that. Kind of the umbrella factor of security over everything, but you have defined cover, you have defined bedding, and you have defined bottlenecks to where you have the ability to get in between, you have the ability to get on and hunt over food plots or get hunt close to the bedding areas to where you have them diversified. Once again, you have diversity within your food plots, but you have diversity within your with with your food plots to where you have east facing, you have west facing, you have the ability to hunt. Regardless of the condition.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, like with the the cost share programs that we have utilized they look at basically um, a, a property and and kind of break for for certain programs anyhow, break an area down into forty acre chunks and say, okay, does this have does this area have any openings, um, permanent forest openings? If no, then that area, that 40-acre block, is eligible for that. So if you if you mentally break down your property into manageable chunks, and say, okay, within this northern region, do I have everything a whitetail needs? Check, yes. In this eastern region, do I have everything the whitetail needs? Start to finish, great quality bedding with different exposures uh, for sunlight purposes. Late season, do I have different forages? Yes. Do I have water? Yes. And you go around your property like that, you really begin to fine-tune those areas and, and know that as I really intensively manage manage these portions of the property, 40-acre chunks, I have deer, their home ranges and core area, well, excuse me, their core area is really going to shrink down and make it that much more easy to harvest them because within each one, I've got everything a whitetail needs. Yeah. it's It's what's the right word? Um, pass. <laughs> I'm trying to think of the right word. That, to me, you're just when you explain visually that. breaking out the property into units and a, and a management unit. Let's just say quadrants. There we go. Break your property into quadrants and say, okay, that food plot is the, is the location, the feeding, the destination area within this quadrant. Over here in the northeast, I've got another quadrant and that's just the massive food plot, build things around those quadrants. And, I mean, build, have everything with, that a whitetail needs within those quadrants. You know what And I, mean? I think a lot of times people fall into
2: including ourselves of trying to manage the whole property and its entire. Oh, I've got water over there. Oh, I've got food over there. If you break it down to where you provide multiple water sources, multiple food sources, multiple bedding areas, and they're all – Diversified, so some yep. on the east, some on the west, some on the south, whatever, to where you think about it like this: Deer are social animals. Mm-hmm. There's a, we talk about this I think last year, but social stress during the winter. Ugh, um, yeah. You put large herds together; they're all basically fighting and competing for the same food sources or the and, same sources,
1: and yeah, betting sources too.
2: To where there's a lot of social stress, and and when you put a lot of animals in place. In a certain area, you, you make them more uh, prone to disease. So it's not healthy to have your entire deer herd running to one food source. Nutrition at night.
1: is down, stress is up. That's not a great situation to get deer healthily through winter no, time. Winter
2: frame. and, it, and uh, research has shown it's it's detrimental to um, plant communities, mm-hmm. which can be detrimental to small game species. So. You don't want to have a huge deer herd, but you can provide more sources, more food sources, bedding cover sources, security, water, by fragmenting your landscape out even more to where, I don't know if there's any research about this, this is just a theory of mine, but you can hold more deer on a property that has all of these water, food, cover, Throughout the landscape to where there's not defined, you you have quadrants, uh, uh, let's just say per 5 acres or per 10 acres, I'm going to provide food, I'm going to provide cover, and I'm going to provide um, water. All three of those in every 10 acres to where now you have deer don't have to travel as far to those food and, sources. And
1: don't think that that food source has to be a food plot. No, in that explanation. Yes, it that. could be.
2: It could be as simple as an east-facing um, early secessional plant la- community. Plant community, and then and then a west-facing TSI early unit. forest yeah. or young forest. Um, it could be those, and that's what I would want it to be, um, to where now you have so much food, so much cover, so much water um, across the landscape, to where my deer aren't constantly i don't have all all my deer going to one food plot at night and fighting with each other and pawing that's one thing that when you see a herd you're like ugh. you see a herd of deer running late winter and it's like man you know that 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 you're you have the food source
1: well i going to say that that just screams that there's limited resources within that area absolutely and you might be doing a great job of providing a limited resource and yes for hunting standpoint limited resources is a good thing but even if you have multiple of those resources the deer that utilize each one is still going to be regular because they're going there which is dictated by the weather so yeah i would much more Much rather have multiple limited resources than one single area, large, let's say, ag field that was the only one that got cover cropped in the area where all the deer from miles around basically go to. Yeah. I'm thinking Lebanon. It's like, that's the only place you go to. All the deer go. They come from every direction. The field fills up, and we're talking 80 to 100 deer in this one field. Yeah. I would rather have. Three of those fields spread out. Where I know there's a group of, let's just say, twenty here, thirty that come into that food plot, or that that crop field, and another forty over there. And in an ideal situation, is you have five deer going there,
2: ten deer going there, yes. two deer going there. But we don't live in a perfect world. Nope. Um, so, but we can take one step back and say we. Although it may seem cool to drive up and see eighty deer in a food or in a field. It's you not talk, what we want.
1: That's that's where you get to truly monitor the social stress because all of a sudden those deer will just leave a field. Like some deer will think that they heard something, they start to run up field, flags go up, tails go up, and all the deer are gone, and then they just have to filter back in because they're every every deer is so keyed up because they're watching and trying to monitor all these other deer that are in the field and they do weird stuff, unexplainable stuff. And there is a high social stress among that herd in those areas. So again, break it up. If you you know mentally think about your property in quadrants, if that helps, and and don't think you have to get every quadrant done or complete and all its diversity within you know the first year. If it helps you digest it, you know I'm gonna, I'm going to tackle quadrant one first, then two next year, and three year three, and four so on and so forth. Whatever needs to happen break it up but the end result is diversity in food resources, security cover, everything in each, if you will, quadrant across the place. You can hold more deer, you can shrink down core areas and ultimately increase the successfulness of hunting these target deer. Hey guys, if you haven't
2: checked out Hunt Terra maps, do yourself a favor and check them out if you're looking for that perfect map for your hunting camp, your office, or to take with you in the tree stand, or you can even take it in the ATV as you travel across the property. It's an awesome map, high quality imaging with topo overlay options, um, acreage options, mm-hmm. acreage grid options. Um, my personal favorite, the Magna Map. The which has map. all kinds of cool uh, magnets that you can stick and locate stand locations, camera locations. It really just helps me remember where there's stands <laughs> that I might sometimes forget.
1: And that's right. They've got the mobile map. You can always be looking over things. It doesn't have to be you know, private property either. You can download these for public ground. Always have access to the maps. Love these poster maps. They're getting people around, clients around, talking about properties, whether we're on-site touring them or for real estate, but just getting around – getting people around maps discussing properties is a great time. So do yourself a favor, check out huntterra at com.
2: Absolutely. So, we've got about 5 minutes left. Let's well, we've go. We've got our, our yeah, plant. This is probably becoming quickly become my favorite part of each podcast, to yeah. be honest with you. Um and so for me Or do you want to start? I'll ahead, start on. Um so I have the plum and and I'm not going to say uh, there's a whole list of plums, but let's go ahead and just say some of them you probably heard. Chickasaw plum, Canada plum, American plum. Um, there's the Mexican, Mexican plum, the wild goose plum. Um, there's, a, there's a whole bunch of plums that are native to the U.S. Um, but the thing about plums are it's kind of one of those... And I, the reason I'm picking a plum is because I follow several different places or Facebook groups, and one of them um, is big on native landscapes. And so, basically, this one was on the wild goose plum, but um, it's one of the many native wild plum species of the southern mid-southern um, United States, the midwestern and eastern. United States, um, once covered millions of acres in the U.S. as part of the native thicket communities oh, um, that arose that. naturally as part of the prairie, savannah, woodland, and also the wetland edge communities. So millions of acres had these plums. Plums are one of those things that we preach it a lot for our consultants, or for our consultants, yeah. to our clients because of, we all talk about we want to have screens or we want to have areas of of better bedding and so and this is one thing oh my gosh how many times do i get tagged in a debate on eastern red cedar i don't hate eastern red cedar i don't like monocultures of eastern red cedar and people ask me well what's better for bedding well what are we talking about like what it depends on the application but Let's talk about the wild plum, one of the native wild plums, depending on whatever area you are. It may be the American plum. It may be the Mexican plum, whatever. Let's just say, for a bedding standpoint, you have the ability during the winter to plant something like this plum, uh, one of these plums, and provide browse, mm. provide cover, Check. provide food, Check. both with browse and with fruit, yep. but then you're providing other Fruits for other non-game species. You're providing great nesting, great cover. Yep. Um, and Ground these nesting birds and birds that are, are in the actual branches of Making thick, nests. Yep. Because they have so much thick uh, vegetation. There's thorns on some of them that provide um, great protection for these other birds. Um, to where not only do deer eat the fruit, but coyotes eat the fruit. Coons. um turkeys geese raccoons groundhogs um, foxes bears everything really eats these fruits and uh, these fruit i said just fruits fruits um, and so they're so so beneficial uh, but here's what i like about them they're one of the species that if you plant it in a prairie you plant it in a um, woodland savannah you can burn them now you're going to knock some of them back but once you get a plum thicket established, you're not really going to knock out the whole thing with a fire. Nope. And even if you do kill them with a fire, they're going to sprout back. But they're so strong that a lot of times you'll see even that dead snag sticking up for a several years following, mm-hmm. providing additional cover and, and uh, structure for other birds. Yeah. So the plum, it, to me, yeah. I just... It, to me,
1: it's your utility player. Absolutely. It's, that that's the phrase that comes to mind because it serves as such great cover because of the thickets, and 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 I love the the honest. This is one of my favorite parts about them is the distribution naturally across the landscape, because um, they're they're in a little bit of sometimes like small little depressions. Yep. Because of the fire the that used to hills. go through. Yeah, the fire that used to go through there. If it was, you know, a flat area would take out a lot of these plum thickets, but the small little depressions where they don't get as hot, they get grouped up in there, and it's great cover to break up the wind, break up outlines, provide the structure for deer to bed in, um, and then those little depressions also get the deer out of the wind. So uh, It's woody you're in the vegetation prairie, for
2: yeah. game birds like quail, yep. grouse, yep. Um, pheasants, so a huge wind there. Um, just the American plum has a range from, really its, its core range is from North Dakota, parts of eastern Montana, almost, well, all the way down to the panhandle of Florida, and all the way up to Vermont, mm-hmm. um, and all the way down to Oklahoma. And so the, it's got a huge range.
1: The other thing that I like about them is because, one, they do provide fruit and, food, and the various animals that do eat them, like the raccoon, the coyotes, and everything... They're spreading those seeds out across the landscape, too, as they eat them, consume them, and poop them back out. They're just replanting those in different areas. That's right.
2: And the more plums you can have, (laughs) if you can
1: fill a raccoon up on plums, the less
2: searching for other small game they have to go looking. But uh, this was one interesting point on this Facebook page that I follow. Uh, Wild plums provide. So this is... Basically, comparing the difference between wild plums and grocery store plums.
0: Hmm.
2: Wild plums provide 91 calories per 100 grams and register a measurement of 76% water. Grocery store-bought plums provide only 45 calories and are about 87% water per 100 grams. They may be bigger, but they are more watery and less flavor, and they lack the nutrients that the wild plums do. Less
1: caloric intake. That's crazy.
2: Yeah. and so. once again an encouragement now this is the hunting strategy part of the plums people are all the time looking for the giant miscanthus grass plugs to plant for screens yeah, yeah. which aren't providing any food no. not providing they provide okay structure but it's really just a wall a curtain if you will mm-hmm. you could plant a, a a shrub row of plums mixed with native grasses mixed with some other um, nut bearing trees some hawthorns or hazelnuts and have providing all kinds of diversity between the um, seed production or nut production, plus the screening, plus cover if you put them in areas for great bedding. Um, one thing I didn't mention was the the positives for the pollinators. One of the first shrubs to bloom in the spring. And so if you're in a forest area, this is the, the biggest attraction for the pollinators in the area because it's going to bloom in March or April. Of course, the scent is fantastic so it's something that i'll probably plant near my yard Mm -hmm. whenever i move to the country so
1: well and that's the other cool thing is they're a little bit of an indicator species because they are found throughout a huge range when we see them on a property you know it's like hmm hmm, this wasn't always like this you know this wasn't always timber you see some of these these small little colonies or, or groups trying to make it and utilizing what little bit of sun they have it's like Guarantee. If you want to, this was not always wooded like this. Cut it out. Maybe, maybe that's a great place to start a bedding area thicket. Because when you do open it up, those those plums are going to spread out, and then you got all this other structure and the brows and the grasses will come back in. Uh, those are signs that we look absolutely. for when we're, when we're on a
2: property. And and that's what they are. They're a kind of a transition, an edge habitat, if you will. Yep. Uh, put that in quotes because a lot of times it's that transition between between one habitat to the next but it's it's a super cool and a hugely beneficial species so if you're looking to add some diversity to your property better cover better better cover that also provides forage look at one of your native plums for your ranch
1: everyone likes to plant things plant a plum and a plum doesn't take pruning
2: doesn't take all the other work that maybe an
1: apple tree does so you can plant these native fruit trees and uh and, and when you do, I would say plant them in clusters. Yeah. Mimic nature. That's the way they grow. That's the way they do the best. They lean on one another. Plant them in clusters, various areas throughout a property. And this is for me, if we're talking, I want to replicate nature and I want to
2: plant native grasses, I'm going to plant plum thickets in that, mm-hmm. scattered yes. around. That way I have these this woody vegetation that's that's hugely productive and, and important for um, quail and other other mm-hmm. game species Cubby and non-game species, yes and so and then it's really not i mean if i'm going to graze it it's they're going to use that for shade mm-hmm. but they're also going to do that to me that's exactly what happened in nature that was so beneficial to the quail is quail needs some bare ground so if you have large herbivores finding a little bit of shade trampling around these plum thickets you're having woody vegetation that's providing overhead structure for quail and and, and bird species but they have that dirt plus the insects that are brought in with the large herbivores.
1: You know I mean, there's someone out there be like, guys, it's just a plant. Yeah. But you can't think of it like that because of the significance that it plays in so many different life cycles like we just talked about. From large herbivores down to insects, the plum is that utility player. Consider it. Plant it on your property. Um, my animal is the woodcock. This is a neat, neat bird. Um and I was a little naive and and didn't fully understand um, this this animal, honestly, as probably as much as I should have um, prior to doing research to um, this week's animal. Um, I, someone's going to laugh at me, but I didn't truly understand that the woodcock was a migratory bird. I, I knew that, but I didn't understand to what degree they were a migratory bird. And they're... Breeding grounds and summering grounds include southern Canada, Maine, Vermont, um, parts of Michigan up way north. And then their wintering ground include the southeast from Virginia, Maryland, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, all the way across to Texas and Louisiana. Um, that is their winter ground. So those little birds travel, and they have small wings. It's not like a duck where you know they're they're migrating hundreds, hundreds of miles. Like
2: they're a weird shaped bird to me uh, because they have a huge, body, a fat little body. and they're kind of if you ever find them in the woods too, they're really a lot of times if you do spook them, of course they'll scare the pants off of you. Um, little, but then, if you find them, that. they'll kind of like creep around, like they're they're uh-huh. so used to being hidden that you can get pretty close to them sometimes. And yeah. and uh, a really interesting, big long beak, huge fat oh, yeah. body, not much for wings.
1: Yeah, and that their feathers resemble a quail, if you will, that same type of pattern because they occupy a similar space. Um, but anyhow, when they're migrating, they're only about uh, fifty. I think it's fifty feet off the ground. 50 feet off the ground is their uh, typical migration height. So they're not migrating you know, way, way up high altitudes, um, but they're migrating lower. And they're also doing that in the cover of darkness. So we don't often see woodcock migrating because they do it in the cover of darkness. And then they go to these low-lying swampy areas that have lots of shrub cover um, and grasses and things like that. They do that rest during the daytime and then begin to migrate further back south um, or during the night. So their the diet, and this is crazy, 60% of their diet is consisted of, what do you think? Insects? Earthworms. Earthworms, really? Earthworms. So that's a humongous percentage of its diet. So that's often why they're in the lower kind of wetland areas. Where they're always moist and they're in um, searching for earthworms is a huge portion. Of course, they do eat other insects, um, grasshoppers, crustaceans, um, centipedes, spiders. Um, one of the other cool things that the bird does, or the males, when they are mating, instead of like them strutting around like a tom would or a turkey, what they do um, as part of their ritual is fly up into the air and then spin around and fall back down to the ground, straight down all the while like flapping their wings it's it's a very strange um there's display. a whistling going on in yeah. the middle of that that's yep. really cool that's what they, or pits. what do they call it pits um this is all attracting females so it's a very uh unique uh ritual that they do um but again they they are attracted to moist young forests require young dense woodland cover um and that's where they get their food from so Um, They don't like massive blocks of timber, um, some broken up edge cover. Um, So it's crazy, but they migrate that far and are such a little irregular. I don't even think of them as like an aerodynamic flyer, which is why they're probably not in the higher altitudes, but they still migrate that far. Um, So incredibly cool animals. If you've ever eaten one, treat like a dove wrap it in bacon rip the breast out and they're good um but super cool animals and i think that the i guess back home i think of virginia there was there was a lot of habitat honestly for them we had lots of beaver swamps and lots of edges um overgrown fields they and are
2: a species of declining numbers also. they are yeah. yes
1: unfortunately but um yeah it they're just. I often ran into them as we were rabbit hunting, you know, January, February time frame, and, but never truly knew that they were somewhere in, in Canada. I feel bad, but hey, can't know it all. Yep.
2: Awesome. Well, hopefully everybody enjoyed this week's podcast, um, and they will give us a like and a review. If they we'll be already. watching. We'll be watching. Check out the
1: hats, com, and uh, also be... We're getting more more requests uh, for consulting. Uh, January is filling up pretty quickly. We're getting into February right now. So if you guys are interested to get your property set up, have us come out and do a consultation, let us know. Um, email us at info at landandlegacy.tv. We'd be happy to talk with you guys and um, see what we can do and how we can help on your property. All right. With that being said, We'll catch you next week. See ya.